0: Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. Jean-Pierre Léaud, resplendent in a really luxurious wig, is the centerpiece of Albert Serra's The Death of Louis XIV and the cover of our March-April issue. Léaud stars as the Sun King, who spends the majority of the film lying awaiting death in bed. Surrounded by a loyal court and utterly incompetent doctors, in her cover story, Yanja Talu writes that Leaud reveals an uncanny gift for nonverbal communication, delivering intense emotion through microexpressions and stares. In Sarah's delicate world of details, a twitching lip and fluttering eyes signify much more than a line of dialogue. End quote. She also describes how this performance is conflated with that of Louis XIV himself. Sarah has incorporated historical and literary figures into his narratives, but this is the first time a living legend has been in one of his films, influencing how we understand the character. In this episode, my guest and I discuss actors across their careers and how our understanding of them shifts based on the roles they played, their biographies, and changing physiques. The panel included film comment contributor Shani Enelow, English professor at Fordham University and author of the book Method Acting and Its Discontents, Nick Pinkerton of the New York Film Critics Circle, and Michael Koreski, Director of Editorial and Creative Strategy at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Here's the conversation. So today we're going to be talking about actors, but in a holistic sense, because there are certain actors that you grow up with or get to see grow old. And Jean-Pierre leaud is, we've seen him since he was Antoine Duanel in uh, 400 Blows as a teen or preteen, and now we get to see him die in um, The Death of Louis XIV, Albert Sarah's new film. But, you know, the way in which he expresses joy, sadness, hurt, is changed not just because of he's grown as an actor, he's learned things, he's his his face looks different, but because also because we understand him differently through the other films that he's done in his career. So today we're going to be looking at actors sort of in the long term? How do they, the sort of time slice theory of existence, how do these different performances, how are they different? How are they the same? How do we understand them uh, separately and all together? So Nick, would you like to kick us off?
1: Well, just to pick up from Leo, like one of the things that's interesting about him, I think, is that he really is not somebody who has accrued a great deal of technique through the years. Leo right. is always kind of Leo. He's always mm-hmm. sort of himself, and that's the quality that he's valued for. In addition to that, there is the sort of built in film historical import that he has. And if you look at really the last couple of decades and change, some of the roles that we sort of remember him best for, at least over here, the films that. Uh, we see on this side of the pond, it's, you know, something like Simon Lang's What Time Is It There, right. where he's very much there because of the film historical import that he brings to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catherine Breaul's Tronte uh, Fi. I completely mangled that. Um,
0: I can't say it. It's 36 fillet to me. Yes. Um,
1: <laughs> Irma Vep. Mm-hmm. for example. So it's, it's almost like the, the looming shadow of Antoine Doinel is never that terribly far away, which isn't to take anything away from Leo as an actor, but he to an unusual degree is somebody who always brings that freight with him.
2: It's really interesting, right, when actors not only seem to sort of allegorize their own star personae but also represent a whole era of film history or a whole genre of film that actually in some ways exceeds their particular star presence. It's, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the whole package with Leo. Yeah,
1: and well, I mean, and even as early as like Last Tango in Paris, yeah. he's very clearly being used to sort of comment on the particular cult of romanticization of, you know the female other that went on among certain Nouvelle Vague directors. Uh, like even as early as that, Leo is not just being an actor, though I think he is very fine in that film. But he's there to be something more than. And I mean, that's a he's, film that takes a while to unpack because certainly Brando is right. doing much the same thing yeah, there. Absolutely.
3: Right. He's yeah. he's he's asked to symbolize a lot. I mean, the, the all American right. alpha bull, basically. Right. <laughs> right.
2: right. But in Brando's case, it's like his star text matches that, mm-hmm. right? Whereas in Léo's, it seems like it it brings it along, but he sort of carries the genre with him rather than incarnates it like Brando does. So I think... Those are kind of
3: major differences between French cinema and American right. cinema, right? right. Like this um, uh, this monolithic being known as Marlon Brando, right. I mean, he's, he's asked to bring it with him, whereas... Leod is asked to just kind of embody it right mm-hmm. and that's what's interesting about Mother and the Whore and Dave for Night actually being made concurrently I mean very different films obviously but mm-hmm. both of those movies are their filmmakers responses to the new wave and to the late 60s and to May 68 and um like, Dave Rennite is very clearly this um, fanciful, self-regarding film, whereas you know, Mother and the Horse obviously about self-regard, political self-regard. But I've always felt like Leo is, is is actually doing similar things in terms of his performance. So it's really all about how these different directors use that thing that he does. It's
1: It's interesting, too, because... You know, because he starts so young in the 400 Blows, by the time he's like 28 years old, he's already yeah. reached this sort of monumental status where he's bringing such a sort of weight of film historical references with him. Like, that's a, that's a very unique state of affairs. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that in terms of so one of the actors that I chose um, uh, to bring to the table is Elizabeth Taylor, and of course, you know, I mean, it's it's very different, right? But she, you know, from the twelve-year-old National Velvet, you know, through the twenty-year-old, I, I was I was struck as I was looking at her her history or filmography that actually um, it's she's not it's it's not, she's actually not that old. At the point where she starts sort of talking back to her Star Text. Like it's actually it happens really, you know, I think she's in her late thirties, early forties, and she's already sort of, you know, um, challenging and subverting. What's like, the pivot
1: percentage. moment, do you think?
2: Well, I guess I mean I mean, I think I think you would typically say who's afraid of Virginia Wolf, right? But I you might I I was actually thinking about it in terms of Cat in a hot tin roof, where it sort of becomes a kind of, like, sedimented performance of um, femininity that she then can sort of comment on, um, even as she's doing it, which is, you know, 1958. So it's not, you know, it's just, she's not that old, you know, at that point. she's But she's been in movies for 15 years almost, so. That's,
3: That's interesting. interesting. It, yeah. it almost feels like Cat on Roof, yeah, by nature of... of of, I guess, William's text, right? Yeah. Everything's kind of commenting or heightened right. or coming in on itself. Right. But it seems like it's referring to Place in the Sun yeah, almost directly. Because when she definitely. first appears in that famous scene in Place in the Sun, definitely. it's not it's not knowing. It's really just, an it's like the height of Hollywood glamour and, yeah. a, and a, a brilliant way of exposing that glamour and, and and telling the world, hey, look, Elizabeth Taylor's really grown up, hasn't she? She's not the <laughs> little girl you remember. <laughs> right. um, whereas by T- Cat and Haunted Roof, it, right. which I guess is seven years later, it seems mm-hmm. it seems like It's all self awareness.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. And she, I mean, that's sort of, that's, that's, I guess that's why I find her so interesting is that, you know, there's, there's like this, edge of, I, I, I mean, I guess you could say it's it's, it's all it's related to camp, like her the camp persona that she became. But when that, that knowingness that sort of like creeps in, but is also, you know, kind of excavated in her acting style, you know, looking back, even at National Velvet, which seems insane because she's a child, there's this kind of weird, like mischievous knowingness even in her childhood performance that I feel like just sort of, you know, turns and becomes this kind of sexualized knowingness by I- the time she's in her 30s.
1: I'm just now remembering that there was a Taylor biography that came out maybe five years ago, and I do not remember either the title or the author's name, but basically the thesis of it is Taylor's sort of trek, her career career arc created sort of a template for modern stardom. Or sort of built a bridge from the classic studio manufactured mm-hmm. star image to something more analogous to what we have today. Mm-hmm. Which, and a lot of that is that sort of self referential mm-hmm. quality, that performance of celebrity, the sort of knowledge of celebrity as performance with the sidelong wink and all of this. Yeah, that's interesting.
3: Yeah. I wonder what separates her from someone like Betty Davis then. Mm-hmm. Though, I, I, I assume in the way that you're describing it or way that maybe the book talked about it, it had something to do with, it was just coincidental with the era. Yeah, like, I mean, I think it's exactly that, 40s, 50s, that she, mm-hmm. 60s, that she mm-hmm. was 70s. built up,
1: you know, by a studio publicity system and, you know, as a very, you know, young gal and the career survived well past. And in fact, famously, Cleopatra, like she was participant in some of the boondoggles that right. are, you know, Generally thought to have sort of ended that era, right? So yeah, I think a lot of it is just the particular years that she spans,
0: right? Right. Well, also obviously her relationship with Burton too is like such a huge and that and yet nobody can ever make a good movie about that. Well, I mean, (laughs)
1: but like, I mean, that's very true. That's like that's Mm -hmm. like the prototype of the celebrity couple. They would have a if if they were around today, they would have a portmanteau name to Mm -hmm. refer to them and you know, they would be required reading at the supermarket checkout line. <laughs> <Right. laughs>
0: Shawnee, you had mentioned that as a co- sort of point of comparison to Taylor, uh, Judy Garland, who is yeah. another sort of like child actor but very much a child actor in the way that we think of child actors as utterly tormented and uh, self-immolating but please yeah. I've said too much.
2: Yeah no no well I just thought it would be interesting to sort of compare the Judy Garland of you know A Star is Born to the Elizabeth Taylor of like Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf, right where in both cases obviously the star text or the you know the persona is being commented on I guess obviously more directly The Star is Born but it's pretty I would say it's pretty direct direct in those in those 60s Elizabeth Taylor movies too. And you know, in whereas Elizabeth Taylor sort of seems to like take aim at her star persona, you know, and really like attack it and it becomes this, you know, this sort of aggressive kind of like de- you know messing with it de um, decentering or whatever. Judy Garland you know seems to sort of it, it represents this opening up to vulnerability of the persona that she had built up and it's actually you know a lot of people feel like that performance is really abject and really kind of horrifying you know because she's so in in some ways she's so humiliated you know so I guess it's like it's sort of the you know the aggressive or the the sadistic version of it with Taylor and like the masochistic version of it with, with Garland and I thought that was you know interesting as two, as two different Strategies for dealing with like a, a, you know, a star image that 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 you can't help but carry with you into, you know, middle age.
3: Yeah. Has there any, has there ever been an actor whose scars have been writ as achingly large on her face and body as Judy Garland? Yeah. I mean, I think that's why she she just um, lives on in everybody's imagination and right. fascination right. all these years later. I mean, we've all we all watched Wizard of Oz, so we all. Are probably most familiar with her cadences and her tics and her mannerisms as a child. Yeah. So every time you watch a Judy Garland of maybe *Stars Born* or *After Stars Born*, yeah. Your or *Judgment at Nuremberg*, which is an sane performance. Um, you're sort of um, constantly having to reconcile that with what you know so intimately yeah. from your childhood, right? Yeah. So yeah. Watching a Gene yeah. movie is like watching your own childhood twisted yeah. into some <laughs> totally. sort of crazy. Yeah, some, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. I caught uh, last night briefly on TCM a little bit of a movie I hadn't seen in a while. A tree grows in Brooklyn. And knowing what we were going to talk about tonight, I was. Looking very closely at a performance that I've always loved a lot, which is James Dunn in that movie, Mm -hmm. who was a very popular sort of... Wiseacre leading man of the early 1930s, mid 1930s, who by around 1940 had sort of tailspinned out of viability as an actor because he had a very, you know, very bad drinking problem and then came bouncing back because Kazan insisted on having him for A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, where he plays the singing waiter uh, father of the sort of central character who is very much like jimmy dunn himself a guy who completely can't get out of his own way and who anytime he gets a few bucks in his pocket drinks it away immediately and it's you know, very much like uh, what you were discussing with the star is born this thing where i mean i think it would be a very moving performance in any circumstances but once you are bringing some of the backstory to it it becomes almost like insufferably so
0: well how would you I mean how would you compare what he's doing in um A Tree Grows in Brooke, Brooklyn with something earlier
1: Well if you look at something like uh Borzaghi's like Bad Girl he's you know he's a young man at this point He's in his late 20s or so he's a very sort of wry easygoing urban urbane character he has a really smooth line of patter with a sweetness beneath it whereas by the time of a tree grows in Brooklyn, he's in his middle 40s. He looks like a man who has a close acquaintance with the bottle. He's put on some weight in the face. He also has that, like, late Scott Fitzgerald look, which I always remember Gore Vidal's description in photographs. He always looks like he's trying very hard not to scream. <laughs> like, just a vague glint of desperation behind the eyes. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> So funny. Self-destruction. <laughs>
0: Teehee.
2: It's a, that's a good description of Garland, too, though, mm. in those late moments, right? There's something... I mean, it's a kind of neediness, too, right? It's a kind of, like, desperate neediness that, you know, that that it's like we at once kind of want in actors and also, I think, can be horrified by and can be really turned off by, repulsed by. It's always interesting when, you know, when someone manages to sort of turn that, you know, into something really charismatic and thrilling, you know, versus when it's sort of, it, it just, it shifts a little bit and it's, and it's, Kind of disgusting, and you want to turn away from it.
3: I'd actually be curious to go back and read um, reviews of Judy Garland's movies when they first came out to see if there's a major discrepancy yeah. between how we watch her now and how they watched her then. That's unbearable intimacy that you're talking about may have yeah. been unbearable for people. Yeah. I know that a star, her performance in *A Star Is Born* was generally acclaimed, but a lot of the films that we made after, I could go on singing yeah. or *Child Is Waiting*. These were often considered emotionally abhorrent films Mm -hmm. and that her her persona Mm -hmm. had become sort of rotted in a way Mm -hmm. they thought Mm -hmm. watching her now we know her whole story we know the tragedy of judy garland right i think it colors how we watch but i i I do wonder how she was viewed in in the period
0: That's a good question. Well, also, I think um, just how our understanding of what good acting looks like now versus then and her doing those movies at a time when what good acting looked like was changing radically, Mm -hmm. right? And even, like, because even looking at the way that James Dean did Method versus the way that Marlon Brando did Method, it's, like, James Dean is, like, such a ham. Like, he's so stagey and, like, so, so much of, like, that classical style is in him as opposed to, like... Brando, it's like you totally know when he's making shit up, but you're t- it's totally captivating because it's like, I mean, I always think of that scene in On the Waterfront where he takes Eva St. Marie's glove and he's mm-hmm. like kind of playing with it. And you can see her like kind of freeze up and kind of be like worried because she doesn't know how to like react to him. But it's like, it makes the, and you almost feel like he knew that she was going to react that way because it makes it more believable because it's like, that's a real, a genuine reaction from her. And she doesn't really know, you know, much about this guy and he's kind of like hitting on her mercilessly and but she's still letting it happen. And mm-hmm. so it's like Brando's ability to sort of like take an object and turn it into a part of his body in a weird way, even like chewing gum, even though you totally know that he's doing his thing, it's like it, that never changes, at least for mm-hmm. me. I mm-hmm. don't know. Mm-hmm. Even even in the shit movies. <laughs> even in a, yeah, even in a, a Island of Doctor Moreau. Yeah, which he's not a shit movie. <laughs> He wanted Watch what you said. Watch... <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't realize I was in a room full
1: of you. Moreau obsessives. <laughs> watch your watch your mouth. <laughs>
0: There's a great documentary about the uh, the making of the island of Dr. Moreau. And um, apparently Brando really, this is, because always the other thing about Marlon Brando is you can't talk about him being so great without sort of devolving into like, did you ever hear about the time right. where he did blah, blah, blah? And that's also part of obviously the charm is that there's so few actors where you can be like, did you ever hear about the time where he was shooting the island of Dr. Moreau and he really wanted to like take his hat off and reveal that he was a dolphin the entire time? Because that actually happened. Right. God bless you, Marlon Brando. Thank you for the thank you for the great stories.
2: Well, he's—I mean—he's a really interesting case, right? Because he's an actor. I mean, for obvious reasons, but like, he's—he's he's an actor who all—it's always about the obstruction, yeah. right? And so the obstruction can be uh, putting something in his mouth, right? Mm-hmm. Which he does a huge amount it, throughout his entire career. There's yes. always something in Brando's mouth. It's mm-hmm. like bizarre, right? You know, from Stanley Kowalski to uh, yeah, to to Apocalypse Now, right? There's all—he's yeah. always eating something, or he's like—he's
0: putting—he's putting, just, he's, he's putting he's, the you stu- know yeah. yeah, the, the stuffing if, in his I cheeks. I wonder if
1: Michael's thing about a famous photograph of Brando right do you, now.
2: Do you have a You guys. Look like you have an inside joke
0: for our for our listening
2: audience, these guys look like they have an inside joke. <laughs> no,
3: it's, a, it's apocryphal <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Look, Brando knew he had a huge gay following, and he yes. kinda. He kinda used it. okay? okay. Of course, of course. Anyway. Yes, no,
2: this oranges
3: in really the Godfather. Right. Yes.
2: What? Lots what? lots of stuff. Well also cotton balls in the, the Godfather, balls, right? Balls. So, and oranges. So it's about you right. It's and in, in part it's about like sort of obstructing in some way obstructing his performance. Right? right. And so he does that, you know, in in other ways too that are that are maybe less orally fixated, but you know, <laughs> insisting on a mini me in Dr. Moreau, yes. right? Like various, you know, obstacles in front of his own performance that he then overcomes and that becomes the drama of him overcoming the obstacle, right? right? In, in the early films, you know, it is often about kind of cruelly, I think, putting an obstacle in front of, especially his female scene yes. partners, yes. right? Like where, you know, suddenly he's trying to throw them off balance in some way, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, becomes this weird dynamic of like, he starts to look real and they start to look fake and it's this right. whole thing. And then in the later years, you know, I feel like that it's it sort of, it, it turns in on himself, right? And it becomes mm-hmm. more of about an obstacle for, uh, you know, against his own, against his own mastery, right? Where, you know, he's trying to, in some way, obstruct it.
0: Right, because he, because I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is that, Brando got really bored by acting. Totally, utterly bored, to the point where he would wear an earpiece and have somebody be reading the script for him and he would just repeat the lines. And then so obvious and then also obviously sort of the mind games that he would play either a if anyone ever saw the um Marlon Brando documentary that came out a few years ago where it's like the ta- where they play the tapes that he recorded you know meticulously recorded some of that is supposedly for society's betterment and then you could also be like no he's just clearly just being an asshole to be an asshole and play these weird games but and and then as you say sort of like overcome them to make himself look excellent but young or old it, it's always it's always a it's wonderful to watch him even if someone is just reading the script for him. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> well, before we get off brand, I'll just mention like Arthur Penn's the Missouri breaks is a, oh, uh, if, yes. if ever you just want to see somebody burying themselves alive under affectations, oh my God. <laughs> yes. that's the movie to go to. <laughs> well, the, the duo I brought, uh, mm-hmm. and it, it's, it, it'll be nice because they sort of dovetail together mm. in obvious and not so obvious ways. Uh, are Gerard Depardieu and Isabelle Huppert. Mm. The the reason this originally sprang to mind is not that terribly long ago. What with you know the recent Huppert love in, I was sitting down with a friend and just t- talking about you know when you sit down and you break it down the filmography, like who has that many great films under their belt. We'll mm-hmm. say who among. French actors. You have to right. go back to somebody like Jean Gabin to find somebody with a mm. track record like that. Yeah. And the person I was talking to said, well, what about Depardieu? And I said, that's a fair point. And it's fascinating because when you look at Huppert, you look at somebody who, I think in terms of screen presence, you think about control hmm. in terms of the way that she has curated her career year by year, decade by decade, you think about this very self-conscious, almost a cinephile sense of picking out who is interesting, interesting, doing interesting work at any given moment anywhere in the world. So you have collaborations with Chabrol, you have collaborations today with Hong Sang-soo. And I mean, you cannot find an actor who has applied more rigorous intelligence to how they've gone about their career mm. Then, on the other hand, you have Depardieu, (laughs) who has just recklessly lurched through (laughs) world cinema for 45 years. The
0: French peasant style.
1: And, I mean, I don't for a minute mean to impugn his intelligence, but you do not always get the sense that he's being incredibly selective about his roles. And yet, and yet there are a good baker's dozen worth of total masterpieces, Mm -hmm. including a few films where he shares the screen with Miss Huppert. Mm -hmm. So you have Bertrand Blier's Le Valsous, where she's very, very young. You have Lulu, in which they have a torrid affair. And you have this uh, movie Valley of Love, which was the least spoken of (laughs) of the Huppert performances from last year. But I think... Mm -hmm. Very, very great.
0: Well, can you describe the concept of that movie? Because okay. it, is, it is sort of central to what you're saying. Yeah, and well, also, okay. sort of conjecture as to why people maybe didn't go cuckoo
1: for it. Well, I, I don't know about that. But th- I mean, the, <laughs> the, the, the premise is this that Huppert and Depardieu are both actors of some note, French actors of some note, who 30 odd years ago, you know, approximately around the time that they were in Lulu, let's say. Uh, Their alter egos, also named Gerard and Isabel, or at least we hear him on screen being referred to as Gerard, had a child. That child moved to San Francisco, committed suicide under mysterious circumstances, and left behind a note requesting that they come to Death Valley together six months later and go to a series of locations uh, set out in a very detailed itinerary, and he promises that he will manifest himself to them in the desert if they follow this itinerary. And that's it. Mm -hmm. The movie consists of very little more than Gerard Depardieu and Isabelle Huppert like going to steakhouses and honky-tonks around (laughs) Death Valley. Uh, shooting the shit next to salad bars. This
0: sounds cool as hell. I don't know what's it's wrong with anybody. really
1: very, very good. And, <laughs> and the director, uh, his last movie was uh, The Kidnapping of Michelle Welbeck, mm-hmm. which I would say similarly, they're both movies that kind of require you to bring some foreknowledge of the subjects I mean, I'm sure they would both be amusing uh, without an idea of who Michel Welbeck is or who Gerard Depardieu is, but they certainly gain a lot from that foreknowledge. And in in this particular case, like Depardieu and Huppert are really... It brings a great knowledge of what their screen personages are, and there's a lot of sort of in-joking about it. At one point, Depardieu, he's uh, sort of collared by... uh, American who's saying, you know, I'd like to send you a story idea that I have, <laughs> and uh, he says, you know, well, I'll look at it, but if if I like the title, I'll read it. If not, I won't. That's how I choose my movies. <laughs> and at that moment, you're like, that's probably true, that <laughs> <laughs> like a hundred percent. That is probably true.
3: Yeah. Um, and how do you account for the the mid, weird mid period American uh, adventure of Gerard Depardieu's <laughs> career? Yes. A desire for money. I mean, <laughs> so green card. My father, the hero. I think there are a couple I more. I mean, l- the He's... man.
1: The man moved to the wilds of Russia in order to <laughs> save a few bucks on his taxes. <laughs> I, th- I think his I'm motives sorry. are discernible. <laughs>
3: I guess my question wasn't his, weren't his motives as much as Hollywood's motives. I, I'm wondering what was the... Because I remember, I, I was pretty young, but I remember Gerard Depardieu suddenly becoming a thing in America. I know he had become... He yeah. was a star in France, but I don't know what it was about him that made Hollywood think that he was translatable, and he ultimately was not.
1: Well, right. I I mean, I think what it is, and uh, this is something interesting with regards to the movie, is like Depardieu is a very interesting combination and brando's a interesting point of reference here he had that big like rugby players build and something very soulful and very vulnerable in the eyes and he still has it today and that's one of the things that i think is so compelling about De pardue is he's a big man but he's a weak man it's evident on mm-hmm. screen It's evident in how he conducts himself in his personal life. He looks in every way like a man who is completely prey to his appetites, be it an appetite for money, be it a literal just appetite. (laughs) And he spends about half of this movie shirtless, looking like a beach ball, and comments ruefully on it throughout. Like it's wow. it's Depardieu's the wrestler, let's say, <laughs> whereas Uper looks like it's 1978, and her character is an abstemious, you know, vegetarian who has a glass of wine <laughs> with dinner, whereas he's this absolute rhinoceros <laughs> with a fucking cock for a nose, who is like pounding whiskeys at some like outback steakhouse. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Again, I
0: don't, I don't understand why this is not the biggest movie. I mean, of twenty sixteen.
1: Here is here is an exchange very early on when, when the Depardieu and Uper characters are reunited. Uh, Depardieu, I got fat. Uper, whatever makes you happy. Depardieu, who could possibly be happy like this?
2: Oh my god!
3: Oh my god! <laughs> you think wait, this so was wait, written
1: so dialogue or is this <laughs>
3: improvised?
1: <laughs> uh, this I don't know. But okay, so I brought up, you know, I brought up Gabin with regards to to Uper, and I think that there's something here. And this is some pet theory that I worked out a while ago: is that French actors are either they're a Gabin or they're a Michel Simon. Oh. Figure out which is which. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah.
3: Could right. you? Would it? Is it possible to say that Gerard Depardieu went from? <laughs> to Well, I, you know, like any sort
1: of dichotomy, it's obviously a complete bullshit false one. But, like, <laughs> I do definitely see, like, Upper skewing closer to the, like, Apollonian and mm-hmm. Depardieu skewing closer to the Dionysian, let's say. Yeah. I mean, she's very, very... Not always, of course, but if we're going to generalize about Huppert, we think about somebody who, like, can localize a performance into the corners of her mouth and do all of her work there. Or kick a
0: door. Yeah. Or she... there's just such... Like, she takes, like, these little everyday moments and, like, imbues them with such... I mean, obviously, I'm thinking of things to come, which Mm -hmm. is, like, I'm so obsessed with that movie. I love that movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But she just... You know, she takes it's. It, there's not a ton of dialogue, and when there is dialogue, it's very heady. But she manages to take these little everyday gestures and make and just completely express something that I don't think anyone else really could the way she does.
1: I I would say, and I'm not, and
0: I'm trying not to be hyperbolic, but she's that good.
1: <laughs> in the most general of terms, I think that the and there are so many exceptions to this, but in the most general of terms. When I think of Uper, I think of someone who looks very frail but is very, very adamantium, yeah. unbending. It's all
2: about will. It's yeah. all about, like, the yeah. will yeah. with her. Yeah. And when I
1: think about Depardieu, I think about somebody who looks like a linebacker yeah. but is so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Like, you think about his first screen role, Marguerite Duras' Natalie Granger, and it's yeah. him as this, you know, door-to-door salesman who is being sort of picked to pieces... <clears throat> Yeah. Or you think about him in uh, Mon Oncle de Merrick. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like a fave. <laughs> this, again, the, this complete bull who is just run to the ground. Yeah. So it's an enormous generality, but that to me seems like the sort of essential paradoxes yeah. to either performer, which is part of what makes them pair very well together.
2: Mm. It's interesting, like, just thinking about what the way that I describe the contrast between Garland and Taylor, right, in, in somewhat similar terms. I mean, it's not mm. exactly the same, right? But this difference between a sort of, a kind of willful attack um, and, you know, this kind of either beautiful or repulsive, like, opening up to injury. Mm-hmm. It seems like, it seems like at a certain point, maybe actors have to choose one route. Like, you can't, you can't sort of oscillate between the two. There's like one, there's... There's a path. There's a path through your aging process, <laughs> mm. and it's be, to become somewhat abject or to become, you know, a, a somewhat monstrous. Somewhat and I, and I,
1: it feels like a large part of the enduring appeal of those two is almost exactly opposite. Taylor is appealing because she's somebody who seems to be almost completely absent of yeah. neuroses yeah. about her appetites. Yeah. Whereas yeah. with Garland, right. particularly the later exactly. Garland, there is nothing but
2: right, right right
3: this like tremulant uh, yeah
2: self doubt fear of self yes. yeah exactly
3: it's interesting to think about uh, when you talk about Huppert in terms of Elle, um just because it's it's perhaps will come to be a career defining role because just by nature of it's release and that it she got an academy award nomination and it was a big deal here and everyone talked about it but um the reason i think that that role in a film that i have a lot of problems with and, and uh, the piece written by Molly Haskell, a four-film comment, had a lot of problems with. Nevertheless, I think what people are responding to is that everything is just so crystallized. And I mean mm-hmm. that in two senses, right? Like everything's hardened, completely hardened mm-hmm. into that Isabel Huppert perfection at this yeah. point. Um, but that you kind of, you have to come with that knowledge of what Isabel Huppert brings to a role to understand... How how she's making that movie work. I mean, it's a film that people often say, oh, that movie's unthinkable without that person, but that literally is a movie that's unthinkable without that person. I mean, the movie doesn't, I don't even know if it reads without Isabelle Huppert. I don't even, on the the page, I don't know what that movie's even about, if Isabelle Huppert isn't in (laughs) it. So I just think it's really funny how everyone just kind of opened up and responded to this particular film and this particular performance, because I think it is just, this is the text. It's almost like she found a way of honing everything, and boiling it down to those she always boils it down to these gestures but this is like the Isabel Huppert persona in a nutshell and it's just now served on a platter for us which is good or bad I don't know but I mean she's certainly she's it's something to watch
1: mm. I mean also worth mentioning at least in passing is the fact that Huppert in L, like she well past a point when Actresses, for the most part, are not invited to be desirable on screen. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. continues to be so quite effortlessly. It, it in no way feels like a sop to, uh, you know, grannies can get it too or whatever. <laughs> um, at the same time, there it's impossible to imagine the equivalent of Depardieu as a female. That person would not be working <laughs> at <No>. all. <laughs> That, like, that sort of warthogishness, it's just completely
3: impossible to imagine. I mean, whenever there's a film, it's happened also with Aquarius last year, the Sonia Braga. Whenever there's Mm -hmm. a film about a woman of a certain age who's shown to be a sexual being, uh, she still better be pretty hot. (laughs) You know, because it's just how it's, it's just a double standard for sure. Yeah. In,
1: in fairness, there's not many Depardieu roles at present that are calling for him to be... Like, if he's
3: having sex on screen, he's paying for it at this point. <laughs> well, that's... A, uh, a I guess I got segue into mine, because m- mine I, I did think of my two actors that I chose um, as opposites in a way, but they don't really function together necessarily. I'll talk about the first one, Sissy Spacek, an actor that I admire so much. And I love so much. I just love watching her. I always have. And she's somebody who continues to act into her middle age and doesn't get sexualized roles, Not that she ever did, which mm-hmm. is also interesting. I prime mean, cut Maybe Okay, early on cut. <laughs> OK, very early on. <laughs> even before Badlands, right? Yeah. I thought of her because I feel like she's had kind of a remarkable trajectory without making it seem like she's had any trajectory at all right if you think of young sissy spacek in badlands and Carrie specifically where she's playing high schoolers um you think of almost this kind of completely natural talent i I always think of this this is when I say it, it's a compliment, but when Jiminy Glick said it, it wasn't. He, said, <laughs> he would say, one of my favorite Glick lines, you don't, you don't appear to be someone burdened with craft.
1: Which
3: is like a really <laughs> ser- 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 he said pay- that to her? No, 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 oh, okay, no, no. Okay. He says it to other actors <laughs> okay, in, in his interviews. Okay. <laughs> oh, I would love a Sissy Spacek Jiminy Glick interview. That would be bizarre. Um, but Sissy Spacek is somebody who, um, you know, she, she kept that, twang. I mean, she was yeah. told she's from Texas. She's mm-hmm. from this tiny town called Quitman, Texas, under 2000 population. She was told early on, you better lose that Texas twang mm-hmm. or you're not going to make it in this business. And she never really did. Right. And of course, she's went on to be a, a acclaimed major actor. But I mean, you watch that performance in Badlands and it's like, it's like there's nothing happening mm-hmm. whatsoever. I know that's the point and that's how it's written. And it's this early Malik style where there's a complete lack of affectation at all and of course her monotone narration has so much to do with it but um it's very rare that you see a leading performance that is so recessive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then moving right into Carrie which is um in many ways very different because it's this uh, it's kind of you know this Janice faced performance right it's even right there in the poster art where she's this she's this uh shrinking violet, a little done like sometimes you see her done up for the prom whatever and then you then you get the the blood soaked monster um and i just think it's really fascinating because not a lot of actors could make that work just with their physicality and it, she's always doing so so little she's never pushing it, she's, she's never forcing it even when she's playing this this um demon mm-hmm. basically um she's always menstruation she's always <laughs> yes yeah, so it's a film about menstruation She's always within herself. And and it was really interesting just thinking of her career and thinking about how she never pushed it, yet Mm -hmm. with each new film, she seemed like she was adding technique, Mm -hmm. an internalized technique, to her um, playlist, I guess, playbook. Mm. Um, So Toolkit, sure. (laughs) So by the time you get to The Straight Story, David Lynch's film, she's playing this part that I think in anyone else's hands would have been this... um, angling for Oscars, Bravura. You know, she's playing a mentally the mentally challenged daughter of Richard Farnsworth. She has a strange speech pattern. She's a tragic character. She's supposed to have um, lost a child years earlier or was never allowed to have children. Is that what it was? The doctor said she was never allowed to have children. There's a scene where she, she watches children playing or she sees a ball go by the window and it's very, very sad. None of these things are ever milked. She never milks any emotions. And I, just, I think there are just so few natural national treasures like sissy's basic that um I'm always watching her and watching her face for just you know glimpse it's in it's like isabel Pear in a way except it's a very a very like american heartland type of isabel per right she's just using the tiniest gestures and she's not really trying to get anything out of herself or the audience that doesn't that isn't called for in the script or in the film
2: well i think of Sissy Spacek as having this kind of, I mean, I guess the cliche adjective would be otherworldly quality but she always seems to be just slightly apart, mm-hmm. right? And I think it, it it's what makes that kind of I don't know, minimalism um, nonetheless feel really pitched and kind of resonant, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to as opposed to purely recessive, I would say. You know, I th- I, I, to me, it always feels like in those, even in those early performances, there's a kind of apartness to her that makes her, you know, Im- impossible to look away from, and that's mm-hmm. and that is, you know, is sort of a function of this, you know, be it perhaps, you know, natural and about her sort of physical and, and vocal presence or emotional, but a, but is about this kind of apartness or this slight distance or this slight alienation mm-hmm. um, that she sort of, you know, has to to a to a landscape or to a scene um, or to a or to a. Relationship relationship
3: yeah that i think that initially in her career was was sort of um, um exploitive as girlishness mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. girlness mm-hmm. which i think changed a lot as she as she matured as it normally would but i mean if it's i was looking at the names of her characters in in this in this in her early films in the 70s there the names are holly poppy pinky and carrie <laughs> right they all have yeah. this they have two syllables they all have the e sound they're very um, childlike pinky of course is three women right. which came out the same uh, a year after carrie and also is like is, is, a, is a film about a woman with two faces right. i mean she goes through this complete split half her through and she and um she goes from this very strange unreadable innocent to this almost like sexually voracious Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. being. Yeah. And it's interesting that that was kind of her stock and trade that she was able to do these two things in just the slightest turn on a dime. I mean, coal miner's daughter, which is her big breakthrough Oscar winning thing. I mean, it's a very mild performance for like an Oscar winning role. She ages from 14 to 30. She starts as a 14 year old in that film. It's
2: really fascinating to think about the way in which she sort of personifies female adolescence, right? It's like the idea of a, of a switch. I mean, with, I guess, Carrie would be the obvious allegory, but but in all these movies where there's a kind of you know a move from you know a, a virginal pre-adolescent state to a kind of you know sexualized state, and and you know all the strangeness and per, you know potentially monstrousness that comes with like a female adolescent,
3: right? And you can always read even in those early roles, and it's just it's the 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 it's just her intrinsic quality and her her intelligence and her wisdom comes through. So when you see the girl, you see the wise. Woman, And when you see the wise woman later, like in Straight Story or even in The Help, <laughs> um, which she has a tiny ridiculous, it's a ridiculous mm. movie and she has a ridiculous role, because every role is ridiculous in it. Um, but even in that movie, she, she well, she, you can see the girlishness in mm. The Older Lady. Um, there's, I don't know if, if anyone's seen that movie in this room, but the I whole have. thing centers around a shit pie. Yes. <laughs> and, and the eating uh, of a shit pie served by a black servant to, a, to her white mistress
0: who has her has a herpy on her lip to let yes. you know that she's actually evil right so it's all about
3: contamination it's all about these, these like bizarre old-fashioned wow. ideas miscegenation and, and 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 that
0: white people's actually solved uh, the brace problem in the well, south that's, that's
3: a whole other thing yeah oh, um, sorry sorry um but Sissy's she's basically worth mentioning though. basically plays the mother of bryce dallas howard who is the, the the horrible evil white lady who eats the shit pie and sissy's basic per- 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 character is Solely based around her finding that very amusing and laughing at her daughter yes. for doing that, yes. so she's always just kind of in the corner of the room snickering and laughing about the fact that this happened. That's the yeah. entire.
0: Even though you know that that character taught her daughter all the racism that she is uh, out, throwing out into the world,
3: right? Which is this weird disconnect that yeah. why is this woman kind of off the hook? And I always and I was thought but because she's cast because she, she's
1: Hispanic. <laughs> People contain multitudes, you know. (laughs) You can be racist as hell and also think it's really funny to see your daughter eat shit. (laughs) (laughs) That's what SpaceX brings
3: to the table. It's a complicated complicated film.
2: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Really layered characterizations.
1: (laughs) Uh,
3: My other other actor uh, uh, who I picked... Uh, who I think stands in sharp contrast because this is somebody who is burdened with craft, <laughs> is, um, who've been watching since he was a child and who was an excellent child actor, is Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. Somebody who I d- don't normally enjoy as an adult actor, a Welsh actor who made his big breakthrough in Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun when he was, I believe, 12 or 13. He's really magnificent in that film. In fact, I always thought that he had a Jean-Pierre Leaud quality. He even had a Jean-Pierre Leaud look. I don't, don't think that's a coincidence considering Spielberg's Truffaut obsession and their friendship and close encounters and all that. But yeah, Christian Bale, a much younger actor, born 774, so Badlands was was fairly recent. And I just find Christian Bale uh, he's just the opposite. He's somebody who who had maybe had a natural talent but doesn't have an innate being that translates well to screen. So I think that he's like many actors, I think that uh, he seems to have um tried to overcompensate for that with a lot of tics and mannerisms and um losing um, weight gaining weight method yeah. I, I i'm doing air quotes around method <laughs> <laughs> uh method ideas around what acting is supposed to be and i'm not here to just kind of slag on christian bale but um it's an interesting cr- trajectory for me because i watch empire of the sun and i see uh, an, an actor of of depth as a child and as he's gotten older the years that we're supposed to accrue wisdom he seems to have become mm-hmm. more and more empty. And um, I watched like, a performance like The Big Short, where he's, it's, it's just a succession of mannerisms and tics. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he has a wonky eye. He's doing air drumming the whole time. But that's uh, all real, Michael. Apparently. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I think he was having fun.
1: I wonder, I wonder what your opinion is of American Psycho, a movie that is sort of built around the absence of any, any
3: light behind the eyes. I always felt that he was just well cast. Hmm. I'm not <laughs> yeah, saying that he yeah. didn't do anything there but but yeah. I, I always when I first saw that film I had already begun to sort of I don't, distrust him maybe as an actor I mean he doesn't I don't have to trust him but but I remember thinking oh okay well that's, that's I mean it, it,
1: if any movie has really exploited
3: glassiness that you seem to find mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I watched it again not long ago because I hadn't seen it since it first came out. And I, I had the same response. I mean, I, I, I don't respond emotionally to him, but I think that I think that's a great film for that reason. I don't think it's a great film, but I think it's it's great casting for that reason. Mm.
0: Well, The Machinist, too, where it's like I couldn't even finish that. But... You...
3: <laughs> no, I can't. That kind of affectation and manner like the filmmaking and the performance, it was really a lot to take
0: yeah I mean I remember I saw that let's say when I was more into movies that were really movies which were like super dude canon movies where it's like
3: player y- cake
0: yeah y- <laughs> <laughs> Proper legend, proper legend, that's a mate. Coin of phrase. Yes.
3: I have not seen Snatch to this day. Oh, really? And I don't think that I will.
0: Oh my God! Well,
3: all right. I know what we're doing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this week, is
3: legendary.
0: Proper legend. If
3: you're a guy who loves movies,
0: yep,
3: <laughs> that's my favorite thing. The TBS is movies for guys who like movies oh promo God. from the nineties. You guys like us, man. YouTube.
0: They're not fruity movies. They're for guys who <laughs> like movies. But anyway, you know, I mean, I, I remember, but I remember the premise of that being that, you know, this is this guy who's very lost and sort of like hollowed out. And, you know, that's manifested physically where he's like down to like 120 pounds. And he looks creepy as hell. But then also part of what made that work for me at the time, I don't know how I feel about that now, was um, that, you know, he's he has like an innate hollowness where it's just like he's kind of not there.
3: Well, I mean, there, there's uh, we all talk about the the, gim- the gimmickness of doing that, right? And then, and first, then he gained weight for American Hustle, and he wore a toupee and all that. And Batman, he, are... got for, he got too
0: bulk. Uh, he got too bulked up for for Batman. <laughs> that said,
3: obviously, these are not hard and fast rules. Where if you do that, you're a lousy actor. De Niro, being the great example of a Raging Bull. I mean, everyone kind of copies that and wants to be that. But I mean, I do think there's a difference between Christian Bale and Jared Leto, for example. Christian Bale is obviously a much more talented and accomplished and interesting actor than Jared Leto, who also gained hundred pounds and got. Gout when he tried to win an Oscar to play. Who, wait, who is he playing? Uh, Mark David Chapman. <laughs> oh, of course. This yes. that fascinating um, <laughs> historical personage. What was that movie called? That
0: movie? We mentioned it before. We was, talked about those last time. Wasn't it yes. like it was like the Something. Catcher
1: in the Rye chapter, right?
3: Or oh, it's a it chapter seventeen. I don't thing? remember. Okay. Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's not talk about him. But but um, but I just use an example. That's not the you know the main reason why I find Christian Bale uninteresting for the most part. I, one thing I will say about him that is, that is, I think, very... That might tie in a little bit with what you were saying, Shani, about Sissy yeah. Space, is that I think he does work best in isolation. He does seem... Mm-hmm. Not that she works best in isolation, but that she seems removed, you mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. Where he he seems very removed from what he's doing. Even when he yeah. was 12 years old in Empire of the Sun, it's, it's a great performance, but he's necessarily... And that's the idea of the film. You know, he's playing J.G. Ballard as a kid, and he's, he's just he's growing up in a completely isolated environment. And... I think that he, that's how he seems to thrive as an actor, yeah. not it's having to bounce off people. That's interesting because
1: that's the big short, which is a movie that I have absolutely no time for, but I found that to be one of the recent Bale performances that I've liked more precisely He's because like, he is just sort of bouncing off the walls in it. And also there's... One shot where he's reading uh, Terry Brooks' Elfstones of Shannara that made me laugh really hard. I think
3: while he's listening to, like, Metallica, you know, yeah. He's, yeah. yeah. he's Yeah, he's in a room. He's literally in a room at his desk the whole movie. He interfaces, he I mean, to the best of my memory,
1: very little, if at all, with anybody outside of, like, secretaries or through the, like, medium of a phone. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I I guess I'm just, I'm thinking about how to relate sort of what we've been saying about this, you know, these these star trajectories that seem to go one of two ways and... This, you know, the um, the kind of acting as extreme sport that is the physical transformation, like fetish. And I, you know, I wonder. I'm not. I'm not actually entirely sure that this is the same thing. But it seems like there are actors who, at a certain point in their career, start to play actors, no matter what they're doing. Like it's yeah. always about. It's always a performance about acting. It's always a performance either that is, you know, demonstrating, you know, a, a, a supposed virtuosity, or, or you know, in the case of um, Elizabeth Taylor, you know, and, and Judy Erling, I guess, directly commenting on, you know, a star image. And then and then there are actors who kind of refuse to do that and who, you know, continue to, um, you know, to uh, like sort of work against a kind of like sedimentation of style or a, uh, you know, meta commentary on their own performances. And I guess who pair would be. As kind of example of that. And so it seems like, you know, the extreme physical transformation becomes one way of, uh, you know, embodying a kind of, a, a certain image of virtuosity or of virtuosic transformation without necessarily, you know, a, a, an emotional or psychological development going along with it. Um, but it becomes a sort of a way to perform that. It becomes a way to perform uh, commitment, perform professionalism, perform mastery in some way.
3: I mean, I've always wondered I, th- th- if that the famous Christian Bale blow up on set, the audio that, you know, we all love to talk about and make fun of, cause it's insane. I've always wondered how much of that is just a performance. Yeah. I mean, he's in character in that, right. Yeah. He, he's, he's mad yeah. because somebody walked in front of his eye <laughs> yeah. line while he's trying to shoot a scene for a shitty green screen Terminator movie. And I can understand how you could get distracted. He, of course, his reaction is is insane and it's outsized and it's very hurtful and nasty but I just wonder if anything like that ever could have happened off a of set I mean he's right. there; he's trying to be in character and then he's exploding as though he still were in that character
2: but also as a kind of performance of his own commitment to the role right yeah. so right all exactly. these stories yeah. and all this you know gossip you know that well, that, that was recorded cruise, at all right
0: right like the idea that you would like have like I you show, I always feel like you should be very suspicious of something that is recorded and then circulated because it's mm-hmm. clearly they're clearly allowing it to happen for a reason like the same thing with like um you know lily tomlin yelling at what's this david, david o russell right. like that was clearly there was a, a point to that there there was there was someone there was an intention behind that and the fact that it wasn't
2: yeah, I mean, even, you know, even something like, uh, you know, the opening scene of Apocalypse Now, you know, which I and I, I feel, I, I admit, I'm totally seduced by by the the, the story drunk that goes on. with that or, Right, yeah, yeah. I'm, tot- <laughs> I'm totally seduced by the idea that, you know, Martin Sheen is in this sort of, like, chaotic psychic state, as he says, and then, you know, gets drunk and actually, you know, actually um, smashes his hand on the mirror. And, you know, and that story is very seductive, you know, mm. at the same time, it's like, oh, right, of course, you know, of course, that's the story. You know, this is a movie that's sort of about blurring, supposed, fact, and supposed in fiction, or you know, in a in a in a you know in a confusion of reality representation. So of course they need this narrative of you know actorly confusion um, to sort of bolster the film's representational claims. So you know, in a way, it's like you know these narratives are tantalizing, but they also I think we need to regard them with a certain level of I don't know if suspicion is the right word, but a certain you know a certain level of awareness as to you know how it's producing this certain kind of narrative about acting and about filmmaking right. in general.
0: Or yeah, or yeah, just like the the idea that you know when you hear story about like oh martin sheen losing his mind you're not necessarily thinking about the cinematographer who managed to capture it in a way that makes sense or the editor who put it together in a way that made it make sense and made it captivating and compelling you know, so again all these narratives have a point but we're sort of running out of time so we'll have to close before we close as we always do it would be great to go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked um i can start because i've been watching a lot of uh documentaries Recently, uh, some better than others, I decided to dive into a world of pure fantasy. However, the world of pure fantasy I chose was of David Lynch's Dune. Because <laughs> um, I like Kyle MacLachlan. I like young Kyle MacLachlan. I don't know how I feel about him now. We'll see how that uh, Twin Peaks reboot, or re not reboot, but like starting up again. I'm excited and nervous and excited. But yeah, just like rewatching Dune being just totally captivated by this amazing set design and just totally bonkers Herbert meets TM philosophy. And, you know, like I said, I was trying to kind of get away from politics and sort of the real... And obviously, Dune is a is a is a fantasy novel, a series of fantasy novels based on OPEC nations uh, sort of <laughs> rising up and cutting off the flow of the spice. So even so that even the Emperor of the Universe will have to pay attention to us. Gee, I wonder what that could be a sort of a metaphor for. Not certainly not oil, but you know, it's uh it's just fantastic to watch and um, goofy as hell, and just has some of the just strangest deaths you'll ever see in a movie just weird just I mean if you're like as like obsessed with David Lynch as I am I think that it sort of starts to make sense or it can make sense you can sort of force your mind to make it sense but if you're just like I don't know a David Lynch noob and you think oh I know oh I saw a razor head. oh yeah you know I saw Mulholland Drive no no you gotta you gotta watch the lynches with the uh woman standing against a background of stars directly addressing the camera to really get into this one, so
1: hate those David Lynch noobs
0: <laughs> Get out of my <laughs> face, losers <laughs> Always
1: come up in the chat room talking a bunch of bullshit.
0: <laughs> Have they even seen <laughs> Dumlands? Have they even seen Dumlands? I wanna
1: or- I wanna go Jack Nance on them and <laughs> fucking beat' them up in a donut shop parking lot and, and, then, and die- then dive t- internal <laughs> bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll give I'll give my reco. Uh last night I rewatched and it's going to sound like this is literally all I ever do because that's all I talk about on this podcast, but I, <laughs> I was watching uh some DW Griffith, as you will, <laughs> in the wee morning hours. And I and I revisited uh Way Down East, a movie that I had not watched for like 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, I was struck by how much of John Ford, about 20 years later, you can find in it, in the sort of horseplay in the back and forth between communal, uh, the embrace of the community and the pressures that that brings and the pressures alternately of being thrust away from that community. I also thought of something which... I I don't think I'd ever really uh, had ever really crystallized for me with regards to Griffith. He, in contrast to most of the other big players at the end of the teens, thought that the future of movies was not in southwestern California, so he stayed in the Northeast or Mm -hmm. came back to the Northeast after some time in California and attempted to build his own studio. In fact, did build his own studio on a large plot up in Mamiranek, and. A lot of the, you know, Griffith I've seen from this period, 20, 21, 22, whatever, you know, visual splendors uh, that it has, something that had never occurred to me is Griffith shows you the Northeast in a way that almost nobody else does at this period and a sort of pastoral vision of the Northeast that I find tremendously touching because as much as I appreciate the wilds of the Southwest, there's something very very sweet and dulcet in his vig- vision of the natural northeast i also should mention re-watching the very famous like ice flow sequence like yes. richard barthelmess is on some f- like fucking jackie chan shit yeah like it's, it's absolutely and psychotic he has, and he
0: has zero jackie chan training no <laughs> he's just some
1: like he's just soft. wearing like a huge raccoon coat <laughs>
3: Hurtling, like actor.
1: hurtling his way across <laughs> ice flows So it's true. you know, shout out to Rachel barthelmess <laughs> See when I get there.
2: <laughs> so I recently watched uh, the Jack Garfine movie Something Wild, which uh, I had been meaning to see for a long time. I really like Carol Baker a lot, and I was I'm really interested in the way that actors, studio actors represent trauma the way that they perform trauma on screen so this was an obvious um movie that I was that I was um had been looking forward to seeing for a long time and you know i guess what what i thought was so interesting about her performance um and you know which was really i guess kind of unusual about it is you know so much of it is her actually like trying to i mean obviously she's she's so she's traumatized by this this rape that happens in the first 5 minutes of the movie and she's trying to sort of escape from um, any kind of reality that uh, depends on her being present with other people or you know interacting with them or touching them and all, all these all these ways um, and you know but the performance itself sort of depends on this kind of like a uh, uh, physical tenseness um, that 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 Carol Baker doesn't usually express in movies or you know at least at, at this sort of moment in her career and you know so I found it really you know really quite interesting to think about to the ways that she was holding herself and uh, this kind of like attempt to brutalize um, her face, um, which is so like anathema to what what her what her face normally does. So I thought that was a really interesting like struggle that I saw in the performance. And I know that you know the the ending of that movie is is uh, you know very very complicated and because she seems to sort of return to an abusive relationship and embrace it in this way. Um, and I thought you know I thought there there was a kind of Interesting way to read a you know a, an actress of this certain era's you know return to the site of trauma as an acting method um, you know it's it, which it maybe may a little forced reading but I sort of saw it as an allegory of uh, of 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 Strasberg's method acting technique um, which you know involves returning to a site of trauma.
3: I, I just watched the other day this uh, new film from this Thai director. Her name is uh, Anocha Suwichakornpong. Did I get that right?
0: I think so, yeah. Um, I I can spell it. I in Toronto, yeah. (laughs) I (laughs) I
3: can spell it. I don't know if I can say it.
0: I can spell uh, Peach Pond, Where's
3: Well, My sleep. We've been been saying that for 15, 16 years now. Um, She's a new director, which is why she's in uh, New Directors New Films. I really liked it a lot. It's called By the Time It Gets Dark. It's going to be, yeah, like I said, it's going to be playing at the New Directors New Films Festival, um, which is at MoMA and Film Society. It's one of those films that's, constantly pulling the rug up from under you and you know questioning what's reality what isn't because there's a a documentary being made and then there's the the the, there's the fictional film of making the documentary and then you're seeing things that might be flashbacks or they might be footage from the film as it's finally made who knows all i know is that despite all those tricks nothing about the film feels tricky i found it to be a very restive a, a very beautiful and um, surprisingly uncomplicated movie that it just has the most beautiful pacing. It's set to the most beautiful natural sounds. I think a lot of people are making comparisons to A Peach at Pong it's Ethical yeah. only because they're both Thai directors and they both show trees. I, I don't I know. know it, they have nothing to do with each other a, No, I know.
0: It's because I saw it at Toronto and it's like absurd that you would put them. I mean, the, maybe the fact that they're sort of like moving in and out of things. Di- oh wow, they yeah, must different be. Different levels same. of
3: reality. Like no yeah. other filmmaker's have ever done that. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's- but yes, I try to put a peach pong out of your head, watch this movie completely new, go into it with no expectations. And um I think that she's going to be someone we're talking about.
0: All right. Well, thank you all so much. It's thank awesome. you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine film comment at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.